If uh, you did not yet grab a feedback card, there, as Michelle mentioned, they're in the seat pack, uh, seat back pockets. Grab those and uh, interact with that. I, I've seen that kind of fall off pretty significantly recently. And sometimes it's our only way of kind of knowing what's going on with you. So let me just kind of double down on what Michelle already said there and encourage you to grab that. If you fill it out in person, sometimes it's easier as get in that back table on your way. Kind of, you know, work on that as time goes on. And you can just drop it in the back bucket in that back table on your way out today. And uh, we'll be sure to get those. Of course, we do have them digital as well if you want it in the, in the program. How long would you be willing to wait in line uh, in the pouring rain to hear two 20-year-old college kids song their lead worship? And uh, let me prepare you. The song they're going to lead you in is one you lost interest in 10 years ago. How long would you wait in line for that? Don't answer out loud. Uh, most Christian college campuses have this sort of mandatory chapel service that uh, students who attend school there have to attend a couple times a week. My daughter, Rye, who many of you know and um, all of you love, right, uh, has to attend, I think, two a week or maybe it's three a week, something like that. And it's just fairly normal on Christian college campuses uh, throughout the country and Wednesday, February 8th, was one of these such days where a couple hundred kids uh, piled into Christian school chapels all over the country to sing some songs and probably hear a chapel speaker yammer on like I'm about to do and then close with, you know, a hymn and send them on their way. Uh, this particular school happens to be my little sister's alma mater named Asbury. So I've been following it probably with a, a little more emotional investment because my baby sister and her husband graduated from there uh, about 100 years ago. Uh, and uh, it's been amazing to see it kind of quickly grab headlines in this tiny little town of Wilmore, Kentucky, which generally speaking is more... <laughs> Uh, familiar to those who drink bourbon because it's on the bourbon trail than it is as a mecca or epicenter for Christian happenings. On this particular day, February 8th, it was a Wednesday, the worship band got up, two kind of 20-ish worship leaders, a guy and a woman who got up to lead a song, and, and then at the end, uh, the choir got up to sing a closing song, but they felt the service wasn't quite done, and so the worship leaders got back up, and they just sort of impromptu began to lead this song that maybe you're familiar with, How Great Is Our God, the lyric goes. Sing with me, don't actually, but sing with me, it says, How Great Is Our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. And they just kept singing it. And 14 days passed, and they just kept singing it. Thousands of people have been waiting in line through the pouring rain for all 14 days to pile into a little chapel in no-name Wilmore, Kentucky, to sing with a couple mediocre worship leaders in their 20s this song, How Great, How Great Is Our God. In fact, the president of the university sent out an email to all alumni asking them to pray and furthermore to let alumni and parents and professors and teachers and especially local pastors that they would have no control and no authority over whatever the spirit was doing in that chapel. That a bunch of 20-year-old kids were in charge. And if you wanted to be part of it, 
you're welcome to come, but you don't get a microphone. You don't get to guide anything. You don't get to lead anything. The president said in one email uh, to alumnus that my little sister told me about, that for anybody who can't help but want to do something, you're welcome to stand out front as people wait to get in line and pray with them. But that's all you get to do. Once you enter the building, you, you don't get to do a thing. How great, how great is our God. I'm reminded through this, and it has now sort of caught fire to about 12 other Christian college campuses around the country. In fact, I got an email as a dad uh, just this week from my daughter's Christian college campus saying, hey, we're gonna, we don't know what God's up to, uh, and we don't, we don't want to jump on a bandwagon, but we also don't want to block something if the Spirit's doing something. So we're just going to ask parents to begin to pray, and would you please send in the prayers that God puts on your heart, and we're going to commit a week or a month or something like that to student prayer. And so that is kicking off now. I'm reminded when things like this happen, that when the Spirit is moving in His people, there is no outside force that can stop it. No naysaying, no trying to control, no false self getting in the way of shutting down or changing or redirecting what God is up to. When the Spirit grabs control of something and begins to lead something and His people chase after it, it kind of takes on a life of its own. Today we complete our journey through the book of Galatians, this letter that Paul writes to his friend in the church in Galatia. And Paul's challenge through the early chapters is to not mistake the law for what the Spirit is doing. And to say to them, this law, which is beautiful, has been rendered obsolete in the shadow of the cross of Christ and the stone rolled away and the sure resurrection of Jesus. And they keep coming back to the law. They keep gravitating back to this old way of connecting with God. And Paul is asserting and reasserting and begging and sometimes even accusing them to get them to not go back to their old ways of knowing and following God. It was a strange world for them. You had all of these new Gentile believers who had no interaction with Jewish law who are trying to figure out how to follow the way of Jesus and they have no respect for Jewish custom. And then you have Jewish Christians who've been raised in this. Literally their bodies have been manipulated to follow Jewish tradition. And they're being told to leave behind or that somehow it had been fulfilled so much of this that they believed to be true. Instead, Paul consistently reminded the church then, and I think is reminding us now, that life in the Spirit is a completely different way to live. But what if we as a church have been getting this life in the Spirit wrong all this time? And what if us getting it wrong is why it seems so elusive? I don't know about you, but when I hear women or men like me talk about life in the Spirit, I go, yeah, I want life in the Spirit. I want to do that. But I don't really know most of the time what that looks like or how to step into that until it happens. And you just know Oh, shoot. Holy Spirit. 
That's what you want me to do. Ah, oh, no. Really? Right now? Okay. All right. Or, no, not right now. I'm not doing it. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, and we pick up Galatians 5 in verse 16. He's had long conversation about the law, and a long conversation about the law's limitations and the beauty that the law has been fulfilled in the work of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We pick up in verse 16. He says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces constantly fighting each other. If you're an underliner, if you're a highlighter, underline that and highlight that. Some of the key to maybe what you've wrestled with is hidden in that little sentence. Notice, you're not part of that sentence. Catch that? It's actually not about you, which is like sometimes uncomfortable, but kind of glorious right now because you aren't one of the forces in a battle right here. But when you're directed, verse 18, when you're directed... By the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. He goes on to give us a list, a a demonstration of some of these things that trip us up, these sinful desires when let played out what they look like. And it's it's not an exhaustive list. I mean, I've got a lot more in my list than he put in there for my own life. So, but you get the idea there sexual immorality and impurity and lustful pleasure and idolatry and sorcery and quarreling and jealousy and outbursts of anger and selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and the list goes on. And I'm not really sure the origin of the concept of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, you know, this sort of cartoon picture of the life that we live as people of faith. I don't know where that whole concept came from, but some argument could probably be made that it was originated in verse 17. It says that the sinful nature wants to do evil, right? One shoulder which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires of the opposite of the sinful nature. And these two forces constantly fight each other. He goes on, as I've mentioned, to give this sort of incomplete list. And let me be clear, this list is incomplete. So if there's something, and I'm not trying to beat you up, but I just want to be really clear. There may be things that you and I do, like pride or like greed or, you know, other things that we know are mentioned in Scripture all over the place that keep us far from the way of Christ that aren't listed here. He's, he's giving simply a list of some of the probably hot-button ones that were present in the Galatian church. I would say some of those that we could list that would be present in Disciples Church might be things like isolation, greed, power, desire to be loved, or at least the inadequate desire to be loved. 
But I want to anchor our remaining minutes in these beautiful verses of 22 and 23. Look at them with me now. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why so slow, Stu? Well, because I don't know about you, but I want to read through these really fast because I'm uncomfortable with them, frankly. I'm actually okay with the other ones. Like, let's talk about greed and sexual immorality and outbursts of anger. Let's talk about those. Like I, those, I, for some reason, I feel acquainted with, and I feel like we know how to talk about those. But when we talk about love and joy and peace and patience, I, I get uncomfortable. My skin crawls a little bit, and I, I've been trying to put my finger on it all week, why it is, and I don't know all the answers, but I know one of them. And it's the reality that I can't white-knuckle those things. I just can't. I can't just love more because I think it's right. I can sexual immoral more. That I got agency over. You, do you feel me? Like, I can be more greedy. It's super easy. I got a couple friends I can hang out with that when I leave, I like feel like I need a cold shower because I feel just greedy being around them. I can be more angry. It's, it might be hard to believe for some of you that I could actually be more angry, but I can. Just... Ask me to untangle Christmas lights and you'll just. <laughs> but we read these love and joy, peace. And I, I usually never even get down to gentleness and self-control because those ones are so uncomfortable. And for those things to be part of who we are, it actually has to come from who we are or at least who we are becoming. Now, in true pastoral fashion, Paul gives three challenges at the end of this, you know, like a good Baptist sermon. Don't become conceited, he says, at the end of 26, and don't provoke one another, and don't be jealous of one another. It's like Paul just couldn't resist the, hey, here's some things don't do. And I guess all this is well and good, but uh, sadly, I've been really guilty, and maybe you can relate. For so many years of approaching all of this wrong. And in approaching it all wrong, defeat for me in the fruit of the Spirit has been nearly guaranteed. With short little exceptions where I was able to white knuckle it, or when my own Asbury revival would break out for a brief moment. You see, in, in the strange new world in which we live, Personal agency is everything. My intent is not to offend you for offense sake, but the gospel is going to be offensive to us in the next few minutes, all of us. I'm going to work hard to not list the things to further exacerbate your frustration with me. I believe if the Holy Spirit's real and at work, he'll bring them up to mind. You see, it comes with a lot of different names. Agency is sort of the, the new most popular phrase on a couple different hot button issues, but you know some of the other words that we use. Most of the time, we call it personal freedom. 
But, but by Paul's definition of freedom, personal freedom as we kind of understand it in Americana, and we touched on this last week, is, so I won't go into too much detail, but personal freedom as Paul describes it is completely different than personal freedom as we understand it in our American context. And it's important that we recognize the difference. When Paul talks about freedom, he talks about freedom to not be what my self-centered self wants to be. When we talk about personal freedom in the American culture, it's to be exactly what I want to be. I have the freedom to own what I want, to do what I want, to go where I want, to think what I want. Sometimes we even, even call this autonomy. For most of us, when we study our calendar at the beginning of the week or the end of last week or whenever you study your calendar and you kind of look at the week ahead, I don't know about you, but what's the best news you can see in your calendar? A free night. Isn't that like the best? I mean, I don't know about all of your jobs, but I think most of our jobs require some evenings from us. Got kids running to run around in sports. You got grandkids to visit. You got work stuff to do. You got late night call. You got all the stuff. And, and one of the best pieces of news you can get is a free night. We want to be free. I want to not be obligated to do anything, be anywhere, show up for anyone. We look forward to camping or to a vacation or to simply just a day out by ourselves, where the phone can't ring and nobody can get to us. We want to be autonomous and free to do as we want. We want to pick up the phone and call somebody and we want them to answer whenever we want them to answer. But guess what? They don't. And so we ascribe that something's wrong with them because they didn't answer when I want them to answer, right? And in approaching our life with God in this way that we have approached the rest of the world, we have doomed ourselves to not live in the Spirit's leading. Uh, let me illustrate it this way, uh, a story that I've told here at least a number of times, if not lots of times. But it seems fitting with Lent right on the horizon. There was a man, uh, the story is written in a book by Thomas Merton, and so I'm retelling a story that Thomas Merton tells this man uh, had long since been the biggest partier in his town. And in his circle of friends, he could party every single one of his friends under the table. He could drink them all under the table. He could stay out all night under the table. When they would begin to get so drunk they would fall over, he could pile on some more. And when they got so tired, they slumped over and fell asleep. He was ready to go and party some more. Nobody could outdrink him. Nobody could out-party him, and he could get up the next morning and outwork any single one of them, no matter what. But he had this powerful encounter with the Almighty God at some point in his life, and he had a powerful conversion, and he interacted with the gospel of Christ and recognized his own sin and his own shortcoming and realized how desperately he wanted to have a savior in his life and leave this old life behind. And so he gave his life to Christ. And as was sort of his wiring, he decided to become a monk. 
And he researched all the different monks, and he found that the Trappist monks were some of the most devoted and committed of all the monks. And so he joined this Trappist monk, and Lent rolled around one season. And as Lent rolled around that season, they began to do these various deprivations that the monks will practice. And they went without food, and they went without sleep, and they would get up all hours of the night and do these long prayer vigils. In pretty short time, week one, week two, a couple of the monks fell ill. And just the sleep deprivation and the lack of food, they were in the infirmary. A couple more weeks went on, and a few other monks got tired and sick. And what you know, by, by the end of Lent, the only monk left standing was this new monk who had had this powerful conversion. He had fasted them all under the table. Nobody could fast as good as him. And the question rises for us, what was actually converted in this man? What had been transformed about him? And it's hard to come to any conclusion other than to say nothing. He had just found a more socially acceptable place to whatever them all under the table. And probably a little healthier, you know, a little less whiskey and fewer cigars and a little more sleep is probably a good thing. But what had actually been transformed? You see, sadly, we've approached our life with God with the same kind of idea where we have brought into our life with God this high value, if not the highest of all values, of autonomy, of personal freedom, of agency. And we say to God, I am my own being and I will do what I want. Now, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to follow your way as long as I never have to sacrifice any of my agency. This is why the act of generosity is such a formative experience for us and one that we have promoted so willingly around disciples because we recognize when we are generous financially, we are laying on the table some agency and saying, this thing that I earned that is rightfully mine, I'm going to lay on the table and say, I'm going to back away from it, God. It is now the collectives. So we often make the mistake of thinking about our life as this life where the devil's on one shoulder and an angel's on the other, and it's just a matter of what voice will I listen to today. But Paul makes it clear theologically in the text what our life is teaching us experientially all the time. And it is that autonomy is slavery to self. And a self-centered life always leads to death. It always leads to death. I pause here to let you think about the ways in which your own fight for autonomy will lead to death. I'm not going to mention them. (laughs) Maybe I'm a coward. But you think about what they are. What are the things about your personal freedom and your autonomy that will change the way you vote? And think those through to the nth degree, how they lead to death. What are the things in which your life that you will not let go of your tight cling to? What are the things of my life that I will not let go of my cling to? That if held tightly, 
will lead me to death. Death of my soul, death of relationships, even death of another person. You see, autonomy is slavery. But when the Spirit controls our lives, not only does it produce the positive attributes listed there in verses 22 and 23, but it also defends against the attack of the negative attributes. This is the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit. It's this battle that is waging. Think about for those who are a parent, uh, I think it's just about equal for an auntie or an uncle. Think about holding that tiny little thing. Now, think about it after you've had a nap, so maybe that'll help um, the analogy work. But, you know, you're rested. Imagine yourself rested, right? Okay, parents. And you're holding this sweet little thing, whether it's a niece or nephew, grandchild or your own child. And think about the deep love you feel for that precious, fragile little thing. And then I want you to think about when you felt that last, how much jealousy did you feel with that baby? How much division and argument did you feel you needed to have with that tiny little baby? You just don't get it, baby. <laughs> you didn't. It's as if the love that was in you in that moment for that baby washed away half of the list of the bad stuff that Paul talks about. Division and dissension and outbursts of anger and jealousy. Oh, wow. So love just like wiped all those out. And then the second one, joy. Think about a, a family dinner that you've had. I, my, as you know, I got two kids away at college, and so getting my whole family together is pretty rare these days, and I've become this blubbering idiot that I never was before. I've never been a crier. And now we're sitting at dinner on these rare occasions, and we got a glass of wine, and there's tons of food on the table, and I'm just reminded that God has been so good to us, and that's a dang it, I'm going to do it right now. And I just start crying at dinner. And my kids are like, Dad, what is wrong with you? I'm just so happy we're all together. <laughs> it's like I just feel this overwhelming joy that the food at this table represents God's goodness to us. That at least around my table, God's protected us from disease and from so many things that he's not protected every other family from. And in those moments, that joy is overwhelming to me. And in those moments, I don't feel division with them. And me and my kids don't agree on politics. But in those moments of overwhelming joy, I don't, you know what? And now is a really good time to discuss this issue that will be on the ballot in November. I'd like to talk about this with all, no, it doesn't even come to my mind. I don't feel my selfish ambition rise up at that table in those moments of joy. In those moments of joy, when the table is full of food and good drink, I, I don't feel a lack of anything. I don't wish there was more. I don't worry about where will the next meal come from. I don't, none of that stuff grasps me. I just feel joy. We're only at the first two, friends. You get the feeling of how this cascades down? That when the Spirit controls our lives, He produces love and joy. 
and peace and patience and kindness. You get to the end of that list and you realize a life lived like that doesn't look like the life I've been living. It looks different. You see, the Spirit's work gives us a vision for life in God's kingdom where his presence is central and transformation is normal. Friends, if we want to know if the Spirit's controlling our lives, certainly these, this fruit is bubbling up in us. But another real easy way to have a sense for how is the Spirit controlling my life is to simply ask, how much have I been transformed in the last year? Look back at your life over the last year and go, what's changing in me? I'm telling you, you are not going to vote in your 60s like you did in your 20s. You're just not. You're not going to think about the homeless in your 60s like you did in your 20s. You're not going to think about your kids in your 60s the way you did about them in your 20s. It's transformative, at least if the Spirit controls our lives. And the increasing love and joy and peace and patience and the rest of it will transform the way we see the world and we live in the world. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and with it comes the season of Lent. Now, you may think, I don't know what kind of church I'm in. Are you all Baptist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Catholic? What in the world is happening? We're Baptist Catholic Hostel here. Okay? There you go. That's what we are. Jesus wins, okay? That's what we are. We're Jesus people. Can you imagine somebody asking Jesus, so Jesus, which are you? He's like, I'm Jesus. What do, you, what do you mean, which am I? I'm Jesus. But Lent's coming, this season of give or take six weeks, 40 days plus the Sundays. Or historically in the ancient church, a season of fasting would take place, and a time of denying your body particular things that you love to eat or drink, so that you had a constant reminder throughout each day of how different it is to live in the kingdom of God. It's a reminder to pray. It's a reminder to draw back as we lead up to the Easter celebration and remind ourselves the chasm that lie between us and Christ and the way of Christ. And these 40 days help us prepare to celebrate the risen Savior, Jesus. We take these six weeks to pause at various times, to reflect on the holy goodness of Jesus. It's a time of reflection to say, Holy Spirit, are there ways in which my life you want to realign? Are there ways in my life where you want your fruit to grow more readily? Nearly two weeks ago, a few college students got back up on a stage because they just sensed the service wasn't over yet. And they began to sing, How Great Is Our God. And all will sing, How Great, How Great Is Our God. And a movement was born. I'm sure it's not perfect. I'm sure it's not perfectly pure. None of us are. But just like a 
couple of college students who got back on a stage. Imagine what would happen if each of our lives were so attentive to the spirit that we were willing to pause. That we were willing to wait and to say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to develop in me over the next six weeks as we lead up to Easter? What ways in which does your spirit long to lead me in a new direction over these next few weeks? May you sense the spirit in your life and may you cooperate with its work to give you a grander vision for your own transformative hunger for his presence. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit. You are so good to us. And we recognize, or at least I recognize how hard-headed I am so much of the time. How unwilling I am to cooperate with your Spirit's work to simply transform these little pieces of who I am into what you would have me to be. But God, we recognize that your spirit longs to mark us, to touch us with your presence, to transform us into who you are. Take just a moment where you're at in quiet reflection and simply ask God the question, Holy Spirit, what do you want to transform in me? sing a closing song before Ashley comes up to close down our morning. But I want to uh, invite or at least extend one other experience to you this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit spoke really clearly to you what he wants to transform in you. And uh, if that's the case, I'd, I'd love to touch you uh, in a way. To simply say the mark of the Spirit is on you. That we pay attention when the Spirit speaks to us. So I've got a, a little bottle of oil here that smells like rose petals. And want to invite you, if the Spirit spoke something to you in that moment that He wants to transform, to just join me up front. And I just want to put a tiny little touch of oil on your forehead and agree with you and say, Spirit, transform us. And that just serves as a mark on you that is a symbol of the mark of the Spirit on your life. And as you go throughout your day, you're gonna get a, a little whiff of rose petal a few times throughout the day. Maybe you'll really enjoy that smell. Maybe it will be off-putting. But no matter what, it will remind you that the Spirit has touched you this day and that there is something in you He longs to transform. If that would help you in your transformational process as we sing, I'll be right up here up front and would just love to dab that with you and agree with you 
in the Spirit's transformation. Let's stand, if you would, and we'll worship together.